So as you might have noticed when uh, Mandy was reading God's word, uh, this is a song of a people who are looking for relief. A song of ascent, which means, you know, the people of God were journeying to the temple. So a song of journeying people who are met with contempt and scorn from those surrounding them. A people who appear to be at the mercy of a system uh, by those who are at ease, uh, those who are proud. They've had their fill of contempt. They're begging for relief. If I were to ask you after uh, this past week what you might be picturing when I say that, uh, my guess is that for many of you, uh, no matter where you fall politically, that news stories of the separation of uh, children from their parents at the Mexico border might come to mind. I'm just going to dive into this uh, this week. Uh, there's a haunting and heartbreaking image that uh, we haven't been able to get away from of a girl crying as her mother's uh, being searched at the border and uh, a child that we're told has been taken uh, from her mother who crossed the border seeking mercy uh, but found the full force of the law, be it just or unjust. Uh, all week we haven't been able to avoid this topic as much as we've wanted to. Uh, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, any social media, uh, you've seen it. We've heard discussions at restaurants. I've heard discussions at Starbucks. You've probably heard discussions at work. There's no place in our lives that has been left untouched by the events of the past few weeks. And so why should Sunday be any different? Uh, we've heard the word justice used a lot this week. We've also heard and read lots of other words like moral, evil, merciless, zero tolerance. I've heard some blame uh, Republicans, others blame Democrats for the suffering at the border. I've heard some take issues with lawmakers and others take issues with law enforcement. I've heard some invoke justice and others invoke mercy. But no matter who you ask, everyone seems to agree that the system is broken. Those are words that I've heard from across the aisle and they're true words. Uh, broken is a word that we Christians use a lot when we talk about our world. Uh, and this system is broken, but it's not just broken legislatively. Brokenness is found at every level, from here to any country in the world, uh, from government to families to souls. So what do we do about the brokenness? Wherever we fall, uh, most of us want to do something. What do we do? I'm not up here today to, to bleed your heart on, on this issue specifically. Uh, there's enough out there to provoke your sensitivity. Uh, you don't need me for that. Uh, I want to talk about Psalm 123 and what it says about God's people and the themes of mercy and justice. In God's providence, we chose uh, the psalms that we were going to preach and the sermon titles for this summer series months ago. And the title of this one was labeled Injustice. I didn't plan that. Uh, we believe in an all-knowing God, be it past, present, future, whatever. Uh, and there's no mistaking that our hearts have been tenderized this week as we think about mercy and justice. And I know that he's going to speak to us through Psalm 123 today. So we're going to look at these four short, timely verses asking who do we look to? What do we ask? And how do we wait when it seems like nothing is changing? 
Look with me at verse one and we'll get started. The verses will be on the screen. He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So in our second sermon in this series, Clint preached from Psalm 121, and at first sight, it looks like this starts very similarly. In Psalm 21, uh, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then it goes on to talk about all the wonderful benefits of this relationship with God, how he's our keeper, how he's our shade, our protector. Well, this morning's psalm Uh, may sound like that, but it's actually speaking directly to God, not about God. So this is a song and a prayer. Uh, The psalmist is lifting his eyes to the Lord, but he doesn't focus on what God has done or what he does or what he's going to do. He focuses on who God is. He says, I lift my eyes to you. He says, uh, you're the one who's enthroned in the heavens. I lift my eyes to the king capital K, Uh, the one at the seat of ultimate power, the one who inhabits the heavens above all. The end of the psalm talks about the suffering of the community of God, so we know why he's looking to him as the ultimate sovereign power. He's in need. His people are in need. And where he goes to make his request matters. It's worth noting that this psalm begins with lifting eyes to God instead of the uh, lamenting of the suffering. It ends with that, but it begins with the psalmist looking to God. Uh, Despite all that's going on, despite the difficulty that he's experiencing, that his people are experiencing, he makes the point to recall who's really in authority. Who really has the power? Is it the oppressor? Is it uh, Israel's leaders? Is it a rebel leader? No. He says, I lift my eyes to you. You are the one enthroned in the heavens. No one else. The beginning of this song is putting our world into perspective. It's reminding us who's in charge, who we should look to first, who has the power, who is in the seat of ultimate authority. And not only that, it's an acknowledgement of allegiance, a recognition of dependence. Look with me at verse 2 as he expands on that. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So now you might have noticed that the voice has shifted from one person praying uh, in the singular to this corporate prayer of God's people. And the community of God is taking the stance that they're servants of God. The servants in ancient Israel were dependent upon their masters. Uh, Sometimes they were peoples from a land that uh, Israel had defeated, but usually they became part of the household because they were in debt. They needed a place to stay. Uh, They'd exchange service for protection and for provision. So servants and maids would look to their masters and mistresses to act on their behalf. Because if you think about it, what is the position of a servant? They're in a vulnerable position, a position where they don't have much of a voice. Unlike uh, many of the surrounding areas, Israel actually did have provisions for servants uh, more than the nations around them. And God has even included provisions for servants uh, in his law for them. But they were still relatively voiceless in society, powerless, dependent, Uh, The singers here are relating their powerlessness and their dependence 
to the servants. There are times when we feel voiceless, powerless, uh, times when it comes uh, to our own uh, dealings with uh, injustice or uh, a lack of mercy or maybe injustice inflicted upon others, uh, when we feel like we don't have a voice. And we're ultimately dependent on God. We look to God to act on our behalf, knowing that we're dependent on him, knowing that he holds the power, and not just that, we're also his servants. We're waiting for his provision, yes, but we're also waiting for his will, committed to following him, committed to obeying him, carrying out his will in the world. Where this analogy breaks down is that God needs no service. The servant-master relationship was an exchange of services, but our relationship with God stems from grace and is sustained by grace. Our service to him is a response to grace, not a means of maintaining it. Uh, We're the beneficiaries here, not God. Part of his family sent to restore the world around us and reveal who God is. So the first half of Ephesians 2 talks all about that. If you, if you want to know more about how God has called us to do that, uh, take a look at that chapter. As God's people, we need to see the world through this lens, from this perspective of knowing who's truly in power. We've got even more detail of this perspective than the original readers would have had uh, being on this side of the New Testament. Jesus having come, died, risen, and ascended. Uh, these specifics were a mystery to the original readers at the time that it was written, but they're revealed to us. We need this perspective. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He writes, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So let's lift our eyes to Jesus, the one who's above every rule, the one who's above every power, every dominion, the one whose name is above every name. Let's show the world who our eyes are lifted to. Uh, The direction of our gaze should be visible to those around us. So let's keep calling out injustice in his name. We're in a system of government where we have a voice, so we should use it, but we shouldn't be used by it. Uh, Let's be used by God to be influencers toward justice, towards mercy, ambassadors of and for the ultimate power and authority. When the world around us reacts in anger or anxiety, let's look to the one enthroned in the heavens. Our enlightened eyes should look to him, not to Twitter, not to the news, not to the seat of the president of the USA, no matter who occupies it, not to the champions of the opposition, Let's be responsible. Let's look at those things. We need to know what's going on in our world, but let's not look to them. They're not the power that we wait on. Uh, They're not the ones who can or will exact perfect justice. They're not the ones who will ultimately quiet the contempt and silence the scorn. They've got important jobs. There's no doubt about that. And a lot of good can be done when righteous people are in positions of leadership. 
but God is enthroned in heaven. There's just no comparison. Let's lift our eyes to him. Let's make sure our eyes and our cries go to him first. Let's make sure that we don't look to anyone else the way a servant looks to their master. We have one master. He has ultimate rights to mercy and ultimate authority to judge. He alone should have our ultimate allegiance. This affects how we respond to injustice. This, is, uh, this psalm is only four verses in a large canon of scripture. And we're called as a people of God to, to be merciful and to do justice. And that's all over the Bible. If we look at uh, Micah 6, 8, a rhetorical question is posed to God's people after he indicts Israel for oppressive wickedness. The scripture reads, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So keep doing justice, keep loving kindness, and keep humble with God. But we're not just supposed to do. If you look back with me at verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 123, the psalmist says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So God is the ultimate power. We're his people, and we look to him first, but not just for an example. We look to him because he's enthroned in heaven, and we look to him to plea and to pray for mercy in times of injustice. And we've talked about mercy before at, in this church as like a withholding of God's uh, punishment uh, when, when it's deserved. But the mercy that's being talked about in this psalm is more like a relief, a relief of suffering. Uh, some of you have heard of mercy ministries of the church, like caring for the homeless, the elderly, providing uh, relief to storm-torn regions. This is the kind of mercy that the psalmist is talking about. And I'm encouraged because I know so many people here today are doing those things. Uh, so many of you I hear are giving to these causes, are, are spending time with the elderly, are uh, feeding the homeless, dedicating your time and money and talents to those causes. Uh, and, and that's what the people of God are supposed to look like. Now notice that the psalmist doesn't mention if the suffering he's talking about is a consequence of their own sin, he doesn't say why they're suffering. He never mentions what got the people of God into this problem. Was it rebellious law-breaking? That would have been common in Israel's history. Or was it simple victimization by stronger nations? That's also in their history. We don't know. We're not told. But what this psalmist knows is that God is enthroned in heaven. And he knows that God looks on suffering with mercy. That's what he's asking him to do. Not based on the righteous deeds of Israel, but based on God's character and his compassion. They're singing, we've had more than our fill of contempt. People hate us. We're viewed as beneath consideration, worthless, deserving scorn. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn. People don't just think less of us. They tell us we're less than. They tell each other. They post it on their social media accounts. They print it in their newspapers. 
Now, it's really hard for me to relate a typical American Christian experience to this because it's more than uh, just not fitting in or, or feeling awkward about sharing your faith or even uh, the ostracism that some of us experience from family members or friends when they know that we believe in Jesus. All those things are difficult, and God's word speaks to them in other places. Those are real, they're painful, and I don't minimize them at all. But I also don't minimize real oppression, and neither does the Bible. This is a systemic injustice that he's talking about. Now, do you know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who live this daily? Members of the body of Christ who suffer like this. A ministry called Open Doors releases uh, a list every year of the top 50 most dangerous places to be Christian. They're a ministry that's dedicated to serving persecuted Christians worldwide. The top five antagonistic countries for Christians are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, and Pakistan. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Write one of those down and pray for the church in these places. Ask God for mercy for his people. When they read these words, their immediate context quickly relates to them. For us, we might have to, to think about it a little more. Where am I experiencing this, uh, this kind of injustice? But for them, they immediately get it. Let's sing this song of ascent for them. As we gather God's people to, to worship him, let's look to him and plea for relief for our people. They are us. This psalm is about the community's needs, not just the needs of an individual. And while you're at it, let's pray for those who are fleeing injustice and seeking mercy here. Not just for the Christians, but for all people because they have dignity. They're created in the image of God. Whether you believe they should be crossing the border or not, their suffering is real. Whatever your opinion of the USA's responsibility, you have mercy like God has mercy and compassion like God has compassion and let your speech show it. Pray for these image bearers. We might not be able to solve all the world's problems by doing justice and loving kindness. We definitely can't. But we can entreat the one who is able and who eventually will. We can do that as we also serve and give and uh, use our talent to relieve the suffering of others. At least then, we're not falling into that category of contemptible mockers that this psalm describes, people who are at ease. Let's never be at ease when it comes to justice and mercy. So this psalm is a psalm of dependence. And some of the other psalms we've preached this summer have ended with statements of trust, like uh, Psalm 121 ends, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. A, a nice, beautiful promise. This psalm today has no response, no assurance that God has responded. This psalm ends with the community's need. It ends with the psalmist saying, our soul has had more than enough of scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. There's no resolution like, but we know that you'll end the suffering, God. This psalm ends uh, emphasizing the power of God enthroned in heaven uh, and the need to pray for his mercy because of, of the fact that he has the power. 
But what does it tell us about what to do when all of our looking to God, all of our doing, all of our praying isn't resulting in the change that we want to see? And if we're honest, that happens a lot, right? We pray, we work, but the work is just too large for us. We're not seeing the progress that we'd like to see. We can't solve all the problems. We can't solve all the laws and policies, the oppression and injustice of the entire world, uh, the poverty, the persecution. What are we supposed to do? What's in this song for us? I mean, aside from even all that the Bible says, what does this song have for us? What would it have had for the people of God as they were traveling to the temple to worship him, as they sung it on their way to worship God? Let's look back at the end of verse 2. The psalmist highlights our dependence on God, and he says this, So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. So when we've looked to the power, when we've prayed for mercy, what do we do when we don't see change? When it goes slower than we'd like? We persist. The psalmist says, Our eyes look to the Lord till he has mercy on us. Not our eyes look to the Lord, and when he doesn't move as quickly as we'd like him to, we shift our gaze. There's nowhere else to look. Just like we talked about the the word of God, who has the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to look but God. Persist. Persist in prayer and persist in justice and mercy. God is working. Look to God to take your cues from him as servants and serve him providing relief all the while praying that he would expand that provision that he's already providing through you. Whoever would have been singing this or praying this obviously would have desired immediate action from God. That's clear. But submission to God's timing is built into the lyrics. Till he has mercy on us. Till he acts. And until he acts, we persist persist in doing justice. We persist in loving kindness and walking humbly with our God. So you might have noticed that this psalm actually never mentions the word justice. And the word injustice doesn't show up in it at all either. So where am I getting that from? Well, the thing about mercy is that it's interconnected with justice. When the psalmist cries for mercy, when he's praying for relief, he's calling for justice. He's calling for the people, the systems, and the broken world to be set right, to be judged by God. He's calling for God to execute right judgment because we're actually incapable of that type of justice. We ourselves are corrupt, uh, and we lack the power. The burden of carrying out judgment and making the world just isn't ultimately ours to carry, and thank God for that. God's judgment is in Christ's hands. Thank God that we can look to the one who's enthroned in heaven, that we can trust him, a righteous and incorruptible power that we can appeal to. The one who's tasted the just consequence of our sin, Jesus, as he's died on the cross to extend mercy to us. He experienced scorn. Jesus experienced contempt just as it's described in our psalm. The prophet Isaiah puts this perfectly in his prophecy describing Jesus centuries before he would have come to earth. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is the one who is enthroned in heaven. Believe in him. Receive his mercy. In Revelation 21.4, the apostle John gets a glimpse into a world restored by God through mercy and justice. A world that we look forward to a real and promised future for the people of God. And he says this, He, King Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So lift your eyes to the one on the throne, the one who truly has the power. Let's persist in looking to him, praying for mercy, wiping away tears in his name, knowing that he's more than capable of getting the ones that we've missed.